Hello, this is Dr. Amy Lindsay, and I'm here to remind you that the information in this podcast is not medical or other professional advice. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. You should not rely on anything you hear as a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional who is familiar with your personal situation. Listening to this podcast may, however, give you a sense of belonging, make you spit take your coffee, realize that DJs can do more than play music, uplift you during a shit day, teach you that sometimes doctors swear too much, or remind you that you are not alone. So I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Seattle landscape. Uh, I suppose the Seattle listeners to our podcast are, but I don't know how far we were into this pandemic um, you may have heard about. Um, when we learned out here in West Seattle that the West Seattle Bridge was going to collapse. That's right. I mean, I think it was weeks. I mean, the first two weeks of the pandemic were like two years, so it felt like longer. But I think it was like three weeks after we went into lockdown. So try to think of yourself on an island. And that island has one bridge on and off of it. And then sort of a backwards route if you really needed to get off the island. It's really a peninsula. Yeah. Feels like an island, though. Yes. Because we have this West Seattle Bridge. So imagine you're in this pandemic, and a lot of us live out here in West Seattle. And you learn, hey, our bad. We actually think the West Seattle Bridge is going to collapse. And we've decided to tell you this weeks into the pandemic. There's these massive cracks. It was hard to even comprehend what that meant. Yeah. And so they shut it down, and they said, we don't even know how or when we're going to fix it or if we're going to fix it or we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. This is just apparently it was built when the kingdom was built and we, we demolished we that motherfucker. That thing. Yeah, that thing's gone. <laughs> so apparently the same people built this and don't know what the fuck they're doing when they're building bridges in Seattle. So good news, silver lining, bridge didn't collapse. Nobody died. So I see that, that we needed to close it down. However, that bridge is down. So we're in pandemic and now we have one route off of this peninsula island we call we call it West Seattle Island. Seattle Island. So it's been brutal to get in and out of this area. I'm trying to think, if you're in New York, it'd be like going over to Brooklyn, but you close down the subway and the bridge, and then you have to drive all the way around yeah. to get to Brooklyn, which would just be terrible. So we've been doing that in you know, nonstop. So the other day, I'm driving uh, home, and it's, again, just all the patience is tested, and the... The route, in all its glory, by the way, has a drawbridge. That's right. So the one way now that is available. On and off the island. On and off the <laughs> island. Because one goddamn boat needs to go through. A thousand of us sit looking at our watches. Like, oh my God, really one boat. Jesus. Can you just all go at noon? Can't you all just get together at 12 o'clock? Hey, we're all going to meet at 12. We're going to go through the bridge. Everyone's fucked for like, you know, half an hour. And then we move on with our lives. So I come rolling up to that with you in the car. Mm-hmm. And my words out of my mouth, of course, of course the bridge is up. Of yeah. course it is. This is exactly what's going to happen. Because Seattle's dumb and traffic is stupid and why am I in this car and the bridge is down and this one is up. So of course this happened. And Amy reminded me. Well, there's two things. You're not in traffic. You are traffic, right? Like if you're driving your car, you're not in traffic. You are traffic. And then the second thing is, why do we give it so much weight? Like, why do we assume the worst or why do we continue or, or that's not even the worst. It's a goddamn bridge. You know, it's not on fire. We're not on fire. It's the worst in the situation I'm in right now. 
right? Well, it's not really. That's not true. A plane could have crashed into the car next to me that blew up, and then you we know I fell bl- off the bridge. That's right. We could have gotten in a car wreck, and our car blew up. I hit a seagull the other day and killed it on that same road. That to me is a worse situation than being stuck. It was terrible, Amy. Right. But so a minor inconvenience, a little extra time, yes. not getting to where you're going and waiting for the bridge, it really doesn't have the kind of weight we give it. So Amy explained that to me very patiently while I was in the car. And I didn't say, you know, why don't you keep your fucking self? Jesus Christ. Because fucking... that's what I wanted to say. My internal voice was, what the fuck are you talking about right now to me? But she was right. I was like, yeah, okay. No, ten, and ten then, minutes, Amy. Ten minutes tops. Oh, if we that. weren't even there for ten minutes. And then while we were waiting, really quick, I just remembered this. While we were waiting for the bridge, I looked down at my phone, and so I'm on Instagram, or whatever. The bridge goes down, cars start moving, and I'm still sitting there. I'm not moving, so I'm now blocking traffic. I'm the traffic blocking the traffic. You checked your phone. But here's the thing: it it speaks to the bigger, like human mental state, right? If we are thinking that. Bad things are going to happen or inconvenient. That's really not a bad thing. It was an inconvenient thing. Um, We start looking for it. We start looking for it. And then when it happens, we're like, yep, there you go. See, there it is. You know, it's like if, if the weather forecast that it was going to start downpour raining, well, the weather forecast is letting you know it's probably going to rain. And then you want to go for a walk outside and you open the door and it's downpour raining. And then you say, yep, there it is. Yep. See, I can't even get my walk in. Right. Instead, just be like, why do you give it so much weight? Like, yeah, it's raining. Okay. Maybe I'll go for a walk later or I'll bundle up and go or, you know, but we give things so much weight and then we go looking for the things to check off, to like prove, to get, to gather evidence. Right. Okay. Then you got in the car. Right. The next day. (laughs) I got in the car the next day. So I'm like saying, John, we need to not give things so much weight. It's just a minor inconvenience. We got to have a better outlook, blah, blah, blah. And I get in the car and I had to go take something to the mailbox, to the FedEx. And then the place I usually take it, they're like, oh yeah, no FedEx picked up, you know, 20 minutes ago. You're out of luck. And it had to go out today or that day. So I had to drive off the island. (laughs) to drive to another FedEx place because I needed this thing to go out. And um, I'm driving and the bridge goes up and I just started laughing. I just started laughing. I said, okay, all right, I'm being tested now, right? And I was sitting there and while I was sitting there and the bridge went up, it occurred to me there was another route to get to where I was going. Does that make sense? Not from the bridge. I still had to deal with the bridge. But that there was sort of a route you and I always take. We we go over the bridge and then we go on this the one road. Everyone takes. Everyone takes. And and I used to live kind of in that area that we pass by through. And and something from my past or something just like I was sitting there just long enough to remember. And so then I did. So then I went the other way and I totally blew by all the other cars that had waited for the bridge and then were waiting. And I found a faster, easier, more pleasant route. And so the moral of the story is sometimes when you're inconvenienced, you actually, in the long term, you gain an insight into something that can better your life. And real quick, Seattle, we are not telling you where that route is. Hey, 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 it's the doctor and the DJ, doctor and the DJ. Hey, 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 it's the doctor and the DJ, doctor and the DJ. 
On today's podcast, we interview Guy Madison, bass player from Mudhoney and also a nurse at Harborview Hospital about his experiences during the pandemic and how he's gotten through it. We'll also be playing Mudhoney songs and his side project, Beauty Hunters. We also asked the doctor about the damage this pandemic has done on both medical professionals and the general public. We also go over how we should not give weight to life's obstacles. Can I touch on really quick again, Amy, that seagull story? I just touched That's on horrible. Really quick. It, it is that such story. a traumatic thing to hit an animal of any kind in your car. I was driving on that same route and I was just la la la, work is over. And I had a good attitude. I wasn't like, I bet the bridge is down, motherfucker. But I also wasn't like, I bet a seagull is going to fly in front of my car. A seagull flies down into the lane next to me and to avoid the car to the left, hops right over into my lane. Nothing I can do. And as I've been taught growing up in the mean streets of Eastern Washington, Northern Idaho, you, you drive dri- through the you deer. drive through the deer. Yeah, yeah. Because there's deer where I grew up and all the big wrecks and problems that happen is because people swerve and you have to actually learn to drive through it. That is a traumatic thing that we don't talk about that you involuntarily hit something or kills. I, I hit a deer once. Oh, you? I don't think I knew that. I hit a deer in Utah. In Utah? In Utah. I hit a deer. And I just clipped it. Like, I hit its butt and its back leg. And I pulled over and got, I got out. And it was, like, limping and falling into the grass. I was like, holy shit. Like, I didn't know what to do. Oh, my. It's horrible. <laughs> I have no idea if that deer is dead. It's alive. Its friends saved it. And now it lives with other deer. <laughs> it's, it's doing well. No, and then when we were running Ragnar... Yeah, I was we running up. A, I was running up a hill. I was running up that hill. Yep, Kate Bush. You're Kate Bush. Up that I was hill. running up that hill, and a baby deer goes jumping out in front. A baby deer baby and just deer. bam gets hit by a car. And I was running. I'm like, ah, oh my god! And then all these cars stop and are trying to like deal with this baby deer. Yeah. And I'm looking over there at the baby deer, and then the baby deer's sibling comes running out of the bushes right in front of me like one foot in front of me turns at me and goes makes this noise screams in my face like you killed my brother and then runs off (laughs) i'm like what the fuck man i'm just running a race we were when you do this race then you wait for your your teammate to come rolling in and so, you're, you know, you're always like, oh, hey, how's it going? How was your run? And Amy's running up like, what the fuck? I just witnessed murder. And I was, a <laughs> deer, deer accused me of killing its sibling. And it was just let me in the van. <laughs> All right, Amy, we got to get out of the we got to get out of the dead animal. I'm sorry I went down that route. I just think it's relatable to people. Either there's this one time, okay, just one more. I was driving home. I'd worked all night, and I was in Spokane. It's like 16, 17, working at the grocery store. I was driving back again, playing music, minding my own business. A cat flies into the road, hits my wheel well, and that motherfucker shoots. I don't know, 20 feet in the air the other direction. Like, uh, yeah. And so I stopped my car. 
I get it. We're in, I'm in this area called Lincoln Heights, which is usually busy, but it's so late at night. There's nobody around. It's just 7-Eleven and lights are on, but nobody. Twin Peaks moment. I get out of the car. Car is running. Music's playing. Can't find the cat anywhere. No evidence of the cat. And I'm looking around for five minutes, just stumbling around. Cop comes pulling up. Says, what are you doing? Are you all right? I said, I'm looking for a dead cat. <laughs> says, you're not having car problems? I'm like, no, I hit a cat. It's somewhere else. So he gets out of his car. He's looking around for the cat. Neither of us find the cat. He goes, are you sure you hit the cat? I go, you know, now I don't even think, I don't know. I actually don't know if I hit this cat. Was it just, was it just in my head? I don't know. I drove home. And to this day, I just pray. That never really happened. No, the, the, the cat just went home to its owners and, and was snuggled up. He said, holy was, shit, you guys. I was running and I rolled through this wheel well, shot in the air, landed on all four feet. And it was like, wow, that was a close call. That's right. It used one of its nine lives and went right home and cuddled up with its owner. Hey, hey, hey. It's the doctor. All right. Now we're getting this podcast back on track. So... Was it ever on track? I don't know if it was. Um, but we were we were talking about being on the bridge and not putting weight to everything and trying to have this um, good attitude or plan coming out of this pandemic that I'm going to do better. I'm going to live, you know, everyone's talking about we're going to do four day work weeks and, and I'm going to meditate more and I'm exercising. I'm going to go to every show and I'm going to be a perfect human coming out of this. And I'm not going back to the new normal. And I'm, but then- that inevitably things, some things may succeed, but other things are, are going to fail. And so you have this plan. Things have to be a certain way. And I'm worried that, that, that I can't do it, that it's going to be a struggle. And something about what you said about, you know, putting weight on that, like, see, 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 I've already said, I'm not going to do this pan- coming out of this pandemic right, you know, and I'm going to, and I've been telling myself, see, dude, you're doing the thing you used to do. What are you doing? You're killing seagulls. No, I'm sorry. No, no. But you know what I mean? Like I'm, 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 I, I don't remember the exact thing, but even in that car, that story of being on the bridge and saying, ah, see, like that isn't how I want to be coming out of this. I want to be, I want to do what you were saying. And so there's lessons there. There, there's, there's a lesson to be learned about not giving weight to that or letting those things, um, like it's predetermined. See, that totally fulfills my negative view of what's going to happen. Right. And it's about shifting perspective. Yeah. And it's about being flexible. And it's about being able to sort of, um, I guess, be flexible. It's the biggest thing, right? right? Because how often do plans go the way they're supposed to go? Right. None of them do, really. Hardly ever. Plans yeah. are hilarious. I mean, yeah. you you have to have some kind of framework for your life, right? right. You know, just nobody I know anyway just wakes up and is just like, hmm, whatever, right? Like... There's, there's some plan for the day. I personally don't even use an alarm clock anymore. So I'm actually one of those assholes, but I just wake up when I wake up, but I always wake up at five 30 in the morning. So it doesn't matter. But I had a whole plan for this podcast and it actually didn't go the way I wanted to. And even that's not, I swear to God, I didn't mean to go down the dead animal path and it didn't go as planned. Even this podcast isn't going as planned. Jesus. It's right here in front of me. Right. And so it's being flexible. Okay. And, and, and there's actually a lot of studies in our nervous system, like how flexible your nervous system is. You know, I kind of talked about this on one of my B-sides, but to be able to shift from stress to not stressed, right? That's a skill. You know, people always use the phrase flex that muscle. Well, it's not a muscle, it's your nervous system, whatever. But your nervous system 
to be flexible and to shift perspective as quickly as possible and to not give weight to things. And plans never go. Yeah, we have we have a friend. Uh, he's a monk. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, Lama Tenzin <laughs> this is, is, is his name. Yeah. And we learned some, and I'm not making this up. Uh, we met him years ago on a boat. In the middle of the Atlantic <laughs> the Ocean. In the Atlantic Ocean. And I had been wanting to meditate. And, it, and as I told the monk later, everyone I know was telling me I needed to meditate. And that's probably a sign to start. They're trying to tell me something. You, you chill out, dude. So I found myself on this boat. It's a long story. but um, And he was doing a little meditation on the boat that morning. And so we were like, let's go do it. Let's get on the, let's get up early and go up there. So we watched the roots who were also on the boat, I That's think right. that night. And then the next morning we went up and there's like eight of us, uh, cause everyone was hung over and we meditated with this monk mm-hmm. and we got to know him, uh, afterwards. He, he knew we were music people. Uh, we found him on a beach later and he was giving a talk about his amazing life where he would uh, travel up uh, in the Himalayas and save uh, these children from certain death um, or just being abandoned uh, because they were mostly girls. Mostly girls, and a lot of them were either disabled girls Mm -hmm. or they were rape babies. Yeah. And so in their culture, they were considered bad omens, these babies who were innocently born and have nothing to do with any of the rules of (laughs) the culture. But so they they were... like abandoning and these children were dying yeah. and he would hike up there and he'd like strap four babies to his him and he'd hike out of there. And I mean, this is like an 18 day hike. Yeah. This isn't, you know, this isn't a day hike. This and is 18 days in the Himalaya mountains. Himalaya mountains. Yeah. He, he and, and getting back to the original point too, this isn't, I was going with another direction, but this wasn't his plan. His plan wasn't, I'm going to be, this isn't what monks do. You know, I wasn't familiar with that world. You know, I see monks and I, Buddhism and I understand, but really, I don't really understand uh, fully, but um, I have a general idea, but it turns out that is not the norm. That is not what they do. And so his plan was not that he actually went against, um, we always call him the rebel monk because he went against, uh, they're more about meditating on it, not the actual. Or, and the duties of the monastery. Yeah. The like spending the monastery, right. time meditating and keeping the monastery and they have specific things they do in the community, but it's not like roll up your sleeves and go save disabled girl babies in the Himalayan mountains so that, and create yeah. an orphanage out of it. That's <laughs> yeah. not really Yeah. He had to adjust. He adjusted and he kind of went against the grain and he did all of that. And then we got to know him a little bit, uh, a lot of bit. He became a, a friend and, and when he's in town, Lama stays here at our house in Seattle. And boy, that is not planned. No, he gives us um, how a much week? notice? Like a week, a week, maybe? Yeah. He'll call and say, I'm in New York. I'm coming to Seattle next Tuesday. And I'm like, oh, shit. Like, you know. <laughs> I'm staying with you for four days. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. And then you're mildly irritated. I am. I'll admit it. Like, I'm a little like, God, what, can I get some notice on this? At first, at least, at first, right? Well, like, we have pretty full lives, and so there, yeah. it's usually the worst time, too. Yeah, imagine There's that. usually yeah. 15 things going on. Yeah, your buddy, just happens to be a monk, is in town and gives you four days notice. Yeah, okay. And you're forced to live with that, to figure it out, to, like, your American capitalist brain who has a schedule and everything's, like, has to be a certain way, has to go, ah, go, go. Now, okay. if this was a cousin... Or even a sibling, 
I'd be like, oh yeah, that'd be fine. I'd no. be like, they'd yeah, hit yeah. my boundary wall. Yeah, I'd like, right. No, like I yeah. just yeah. be Co- like, yeah, cousin Bob, you're not staying. No, you're not staying. You're not staying but in the our basement. muck friend, yeah, I don't have like a boundary with him. Like, no, no. Nope. you know, he's he's no. absolutely welcome. And you know, where we're going with this is every time he comes to stay, the most incredible shit happens. Always, most incredible shit. Yeah, like it's like you had to take a crowbar to your schedule. Yeah, and just like bust open a crack for like the most incredible light to, to come through. And our life is always better, more enhanced. Yeah. And, and I can't even begin to explain what happens. Yeah. It's kind of magical every time. Every and, time. And when he's here, you don't like not hang with him. You're with him. So you get to experience just whatever he's doing. I mean, there was one time he came and he brought uh, just a gaggle of he monks. He brought like 11 monks. So we had 11 monks in staying, they in took a, over our entire downstairs. Yeah, the basement was full of monks, and we put like a blanket on the stairs—a maroon-colored blanket. Over yeah, the, saffron. Sa- yeah, saffron. And uh, and they also brought with them the oracle. Nechung. Yeah, the t- the state oracle of Tibet. The state. So, so the state oracle of Tibet was in our basement. In our basement. Now, if you were to tell this to anyone who's in that world, who's familiar, they were just like, "What the fuck?" They're like, "What? <laughs> what?" Why was your, it's like saying uh, the vice president was here of America, Kamala Harris was in the basement. Like, well, how did that happen? Well, that's a long story, but they ended up in our basement for four or five days. So he has his, we gave him the room. He had the guest room. That's right. We gave the kids rooms to some of the other monks. And then the other part of our basement was just, just a monk zone. And they're down there like meditating they're they're making beads and other things like uh, bracelets and things out of their blessed because the Dalai Lama blessed all these, all these things they have, then they present them to people, you know, as they travel. Uh, we had one of the monks was, <laughs> one of the monks was in the, um, he's Mongolian. And when they got to our house, we sat in the backyard and you can kind of see Mount Rainier from our backyard. And he's sitting there, not a lot of English, you know, and I certainly don't know any Mongolian. And he, he says in his own way, is this, uh, is this the only mountain you got? And I said, yeah, yeah, that's Mount Rainier. Is this the biggest one? He, I said, yeah. And he goes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is very small compared to my mountains. I was like, oh, I love this so much. That alone would have been worth giving up my house for all these days. But anyway, we traveled with them. We took them to the Space Needle. We did a talk with oh, yeah, people in our community. Up, we took them up the Space Needle. We took them up right. the Space Needle. We brought them to the Seattle Center where a Native American performance was taking place these first people's, you know, dance. And, and then the monks were there with us watching this. And I was like, what the hell is happening? It was amazing. And so what we learned was every time he's a lesson that, that you have set plans, you have a way it's supposed to be. Um, and again, my cousin staying with me would probably be a different situation, but him going and us opening up every time, uh, always, uh, something magical happens. I mean, you, you, you travel, and then you, we travel to India yeah, so, we've been to India a few times. Yeah, so you went on, and we have, uh, wait, this could be an entire, we could do a whole podcast series just on monk stories, um, the Lama Tenzin uh, travels. Um, but but you went with a friend. You were... Oh, yeah. So I got a scholarship to go, and, and I created it, right? Like I created this, um, it was like a travel grant is what I got, a travel grant to study medicine. And I, of course... Uh, worked it out with Lama Tenzing and Lama Tenzing's sister. Lama Tenzing's sister works at the um, Tibetan Medical Institute in Dharamsala, India. So she works there. 
And so with her, I was able to get in touch with them and they were offering an introductory course to Tibetan medicine in English. And so I got the scholarship and, the, and some grant money to go and I invited my friend um, who was in medical school with me and we show up and we fly into the Dharamsala airport and Lama Tenzing's sister was going to pick us up and we're waiting, we're waiting. And my friend's kind of like, uh, where are they? And I was like, oh yeah, um, we don't, I don't know. You just gotta, we might be here for half the day. And it's just kind of how it is. And she's like, are you kidding me? You know, like, yeah, of course. That's and it's like say. hot and we'd been traveling for hours and we're yeah. like, you know, jet lagged sure. or whatever. You just travel across the entire world. And yeah. I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll call. Like I, I have like the code to call and I put the, you know, thing on my phone to be able to call and, um, but they don't answer. And I'm like, yeah, but, but they'll show up. I promise. I promise. Like, they're going to show up, but we're going to have to wait here for a while. And I have no idea how long we're going to wait. So we're sitting there, and everyone's gone. Everyone. Everyone's rides came, but ours. And, and mind you, it was pretty staggered. It wasn't immediate. It's not like everybody showed up all at once. And she and I are the only people left except for a couple airport employees. Because the airport's really small. It's a really, really tiny airport. And all of a sudden, this white car rolls up, and then all these people with guns come like like a whole security team comes and they surround the car and we're like what the fuck and then they open the door and the Dalai Lama I think like I'm like it choked getting choked up about it the Dalai Lama gets out of the car and we're like holy shit like we're just two people sitting in the airport in the middle of Dharamsala and it's like no one's at the airport and the motherfucking Dalai Lama gets out of the car. Motherfucking Dalai Lama. Motherfucking Dalai Lama. And you have Lama. that going for you, which is nice. And then out of nowhere, there's like people running across the street, right? Like people who, sure. I don't know. Dalai what, Lama. Dalai Lama, right? Yeah. And so th- then there were more people around, sure. but still not that many people. And of course we ran towards him. I don't know what we were going to do, but we like ran towards him. And um, he just turned around and smiled at everybody, and he kind of crouched down and said hello to a small child, and then, like, disappeared into the airport, and then got on a plane, and then flew away. (laughs) But we were like, holy shit, if if we had been picked up on time and, like, chop, 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 you know, on schedule, we would have never seen the Dalai Lama. That's the moral of the story. You wait long enough, you'll see the Dalai Lama. (laughs) all right amy our guest today on the podcast has been a member of one of the most important best loudest bands in seattle over the years um and one of the reasons i moved here was hearing mud honey back in the day and he's been with the band god probably what 20 years now uh he's been performing plus he's been a ton of other projects through the years uh, and you may notice he uh, has a slight accent. He's also from Australia originally, but he also has another gig. Yeah. He is a nurse at Harborview Medical Center. Guy has been at Harborview uh, during this pandemic. We thought it'd be really interesting to check in with one of our musician friends to hear what that experience was like. So we really appreciate, Guy, you spending some time with us today. Story as to the last time I saw you, I think 
this was the last time I saw you. Uh, we were on top of the Space Needle, and I don't mean sitting in the restaurant, spinning around, having a drink. I mean, we were on top of the Space Needle where the flag is, and a certain section of that uh, area is, believe it or not, just like a little rope, <laughs> just a little, little rope. <laughs> now, we wouldn't have died. I think we would have just slid off into the viewing deck, so it's not as terrifying as you think, but it's pretty terrifying. So that was one of the most Seattle moments, if not the most, in my entire life. I, I'm on top of the Space Needle, Sub Pop's birthday, Mud Honey's playing, Charles Peterson is hanging out of a helicopter taking pictures, uh, a famed photographer here in Seattle. And you guys were amazing. Uh, what, what did you think of that day? We, we had a great time. It was a little bit terrifying, but like you say, I think that if we had slipped over that rope, you had a long way to roll on a very gentle downgrade before you actually came to the perilous drop. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Guy, where do we find you now? I see, uh, you know, for those who can't see this, but uh, I see equipment behind you. I see you're either in a cockpit or some kind of recording deal, uh, maybe at your own home. I'm not sure. Tell us where you are and what neighborhood you are in. I am in sunny Wallingford, Seattle. And uh, I'm down in the basement, and this is my little home studio that I have here where I have all sorts of instruments and stuff down here to keep me occupied. It's been somewhat of a godsend during this last year to actually have the ability to do musical stuff at home because I'm lucky enough to have a little studio here. And, and you have a family there at home as well. How many uh, kids do you have? We have one daughter. Uh, her name's Coco, and uh, she's 10. And how, how was it through this pandemic, uh, having your studio there, probably some homeschooling going on as well? Yeah. Seattle Public Schools was all homeschooled for this last year. She went through the fourth grade remotely. That was awkward. <laughs> I think doubly so, a lot of the impact of uh, this last year has been with, you know, for families at least, organizing stuff like that. My wife works from home and can work remotely. She was working for the Gates Foundation. So that was, you know, something that was easy for her to do. And I work at the hospital. So I was going in for my regular full-time at the hospital work for the last 18 months. That's unchanged, which makes it very difficult for the other parent, if you have one parent leaving the home and one parent that's at home trying to work, but also trying to help the children get through the online school day because when they're 10 their tech troubleshooting skills are not so great but yeah <laughs> yet yet at times my eight-year-olds are are better than my my tech skills which is also frightening <laughs> yeah so guy tell us about your day job at the hospital and which hospital you work at and then what that was like with you and your family i'm sure there were a lot of challenges during the last year yeah it's uh, been a as you know, Amy, a, a very challenging year in healthcare in terms of just being able to help the patients with the extra constraints of the pandemic on top of it. I work at Harborview Medical Center. I'm a registered nurse. I've been there for 20 years. Most of the time I've worked in critical care. And just the last couple of years, I've been working in the anesthesia department with um, seeing patients to optimize them for surgery. And what happened last year after the it became apparent that we were entering into a pandemic and that we were going to have to change the operations at the hospital was the area where I work, anesthesia, 
almost shut down entirely. You know, we're a trauma center at Harborview, and so we're there to to service the community for trauma, whatever comes in, car accidents, gunshot wounds, uh, industrial accidents, uh, recreational accidents, that sort of thing. And we're ready to do emergency surgery at any time. A great deal of our other business at the hospital is elective surgery, um, either following up with people who have already had trauma and need revision of, of those surgeries or people that just need general surgical needs, orthopedic needs, general surgery needs, gynecological needs, all sorts of stuff. But when the pandemic really hit, we didn't know how we could continue to do elective surgery safely, protecting both patients and staff from the coronavirus. So we immediately shut down the elective procedures. So if the surgery that you were going to come into the hospital, and I believe all hospitals in the area did this, and probably the majority of hospitals nationwide, if your surgical need was not emergent or urgent, then you were not coming in for a surgery, which kind of cut down the volume of patients that we were seeing in the anesthesia department dramatically. And that's when I got reassigned to, um, to COVID duties at the hospital. And reassigned to COVID duties means what? It means attending well, specifically to COVID positive patients? It did. Um, so I was asked to perform in a role. Previously, I'd had some management positions at the hospital and I'd been a stat nurse, which is sort of like a, a roving critical care nurse that doesn't have a particular assignment for the day. And we just go around the hospital putting out fires Amy, you're probably familiar with this sort of thing. Um, so because of that, and I'd done some management work as well, they asked me to be the COVID supervisor, essentially. So every hospital has a, a nursing supervisor on shift every day, 24-7, and they coordinate how patients move in the hospital from the ER to the operating room to the acute care floors to the ICUs. And they also coordinate how the staff are allocated to those areas to provide adequate care. And when COVID came, we created a whole separate position for the um, supervisor that was the COVID supervisor, where we were in charge of making sure that patients coming in were tested, um, that we had the right amount of staff to do the testing, the right amount of staff to look after them. We created this whole program of what was called trained observers, where other nurses would come and watch the nurses and the doctors as they interacted with the patients entering and leaving the isolation rooms to make sure that they, the technical term is donning and doffing, but taking on and taking off their protective gear without contaminating themselves, the environment, other workers or other patients. So in a nutshell, uh, the supervisor's job was to coordinate testing and to coordinate the staff that was looking after the patients. So I didn't so much actually do direct patient care. I did a lot of swabbing and testing of patients, um, looking after them in the ICUs. That was other staff's job, and I was more the supervisor of that, so sort of oversaw that, um, the process I just described. How was supervising people who suddenly found themselves in this situation with, I assume, like other hospitals, uh, overwhelming amount of patients, and then these patients' inability to have loved ones near them, and your staff now becomes 
the family becomes the company, becomes the consoler. How did you cope with that? That's a great question and um, really cuts to the heart of what happened here because, you know, as we changed operations, we we completely cut down the um, entry and exits to the hospital, which meant no visitors at all, no family members allowed, um, often terribly emotional situations at the end of life were often carried out with a tablet over a Zoom with the family remotely at their house and their loved one in the hospital bed and the nurses and the doctors facilitating that end-of-life experience for them. It was a very difficult time. One of the things that was um, very difficult for our staff was, one, the heightened level of anxiety of dealing with COVID. And initially, we didn't know how infectious it was and how virulent it was, how sick people would get if you contracted COVID. Would you be one of the people that ends up on a ventilator in an ICU or would you be one of the people that just gets a bad flu? So that made our staff very anxious. And then also just it was very draining for them emotionally to spend long amounts of time in the room because you want to limit the amount of time you go in and out of the room. So when you go in, you want to get everything done. Normally, a normal ICU patient, you can enter the room and leave the room, assuming they don't have a communicable disease that requires isolation, as you wish. But in these situations, the more you went in and out, the greater the risk of contamination. And so nurses and doctors were spent and respiratory therapists were spending a lot of time in the rooms working by themselves with these critically ill patients. And it was very um, stressful and emotionally draining for them. So, you know, it was a big learning process. And um, we eventually learned that we shouldn't even be eating together. But initially, we ha- had potlucks and a lot of uh, members of the community, restaurants and stuff, donated lots of food. And we'd try and create these sort of more relaxed environments in the break rooms where people could come in and get some free food that had been donated by one of the businesses. And there were some competitions. We we began rolling our, our scrubs up and tucking them into our socks to prevent possibly scuffing the virus around the hospital. And this became known as the COVID socks. And then there was ongoing competitions for who had the most interesting or entertaining COVID socks. And, and it also made people look a little bit more comical than usual because usually your scrubs, you know, you look like you're at work in your pajamas and now all of a sudden everyone's got them rolled up to their knees with these brightly coloured socks and stuff on. So there was opportunity to sort of create a little bit of levity and normalcy, but in general, the most challenging thing was making sure that there was enough of everyone because nothing stresses you out more than being understaffed. And so making sure we had the right amount of nurses and the right amount of uh, trained observers to make sure that the nurses and the doctors felt safe when they were coming in and going between the COVID patients and the outside. Do you feel like people either couldn't or wouldn't go to the hospital who maybe should have? Or do you feel like you were at such a capacity that you couldn't handle it if people came to the hospital? What was your like internal experience of that? Yeah, it's interesting. It's somewhat of a mix of both because when at the height of the pandemic, when we had a lot of very seriously, critically ill patients dying from COVID, it completely overwhelmed our ICU resources. And we were at capacity in terms of what we usually deal with, which is in the ICU, the sickest patients in the ICU are intubated and on a ventilator. 
and we reached that capacity. We also have another service that we provide at the hospital for the extremely critically ill called ECMO. It's extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. In simple terms, it's a heart-lung bypass machine where your blood is taken out of your body, cycled through the ECMO machine, oxygenated, doing the job that the heart and the lungs would do, and then pumped back into your body. We have a finite amount of ECMO machines. They're incredibly expensive. The hospital has five. COVID ate up that resource very quickly, which meant that, you know, another use for that, you know, someone who who drowns in Puget Sound um, may end up on ECMO. And so if people, if somebody drowns in Puget Sound, but all the ECMO machines are being used on COVID patients, what do you do? So that was one side of it, our critical care services. And we moved a whole ICU. We took it apart and we recreated it as a COVID ICU with a surge capacity in there if we got more beds, if we had more cases. And all those other ICU patients got moved out to other parts of the hospital, to the other uh, four ICUs in the hospital absorbed that. So we were really stretched to our limit in terms of managing critical care patients. I think the other side of it was everything shut down, right? So I would still ride my bike to work, but the streets of Seattle, and I'm sure you remember if you went out, were empty. So people weren't crashing their car as much. A lot of dangerous occupations had shut down. Surprisingly, people still found the ability to shoot and stab each other. Good old America. Where there's, <laughs> where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> yeah. But even then, I think a lot of those volumes went down. I mean, last summer, when you know trauma typically has a season during the summer because that's when everyone goes out and does more stuff, does more boating and motorcycle riding and shooting. Um, and we had less volume, so we did experience that. And I think, Amy, what you're asking is, were the people that would just regularly come to the hospital for routine acute care needs, were they scared to come? Yes, I believe so. I think people didn't want to come into the hospital. People were terrified of contracting COVID. And um, I think that decreased our volumes a lot. Of course, we did see a lot of people coming in for COVID and COVID-like symptoms. You know, we're the county hospital, so our mission is to service the underserved in our community. So that's jail patients are one of those. Um, Indigent um, homeless people are another mission population. English is a second language. People with poor access to healthcare, lower socioeconomic status, they're all part of the mission. Those people routinely use the hospital for their healthcare. They often don't go and see a primary care provider in another setting. And I think a lot of those people chose not to come because they were scared, but some of them had no option. They felt like they were probably had contracted COVID and they wanted to come in and get tested. We set up testing sites both inside and outside the hospital to try and service those populations. It was an unbelievable organisational and operational task that was taken on by, by medicine across the country. And my part in it was very small and, um, and contained within, within the walls of the hospital. But some of the people in our institution, the infection control people, did an unbelievable job of reaching out to the community, of testing patients in nursing homes, patients in mission beds, in hostel beds, in all sorts of uh, 
community situations to try and get a, a handle on who was getting infected and and to stop the spread of the disease. So, you know, we're in a unique situation up here in the Northwest as uh, the first cases were officially up here um, and it started to ramp up. And then clearly you're painting a picture of being extremely busy, extremely in this uh, is something we all did not see. I, I know like Amy and I gravitated to the Rachel Maddow show because it was the only show we saw that was going inside of hospitals. And it made me feel like this is one of the only media outlets that's showing what's really happening. And I wonder, I always wondered how aware you and others were about politicizing this virus, the reaction to a certain portion of our population who um, didn't believe this virus was real. Did, did, did you have to deal with that? And, and if you did, how did your brain not just explode in anger and frustration? Because I, I went crazy and I'm, I'm not you. I'm not in the hospital seeing those things. Were you aware of that? Well, I too, you know, watched uh, Rachel Maddow and um, a lot of media coverage of the pandemic. And it was, it was difficult to watch the media's interpretation of what was going on um, and what was being portrayed around the country. Personally, at the hospital, we had really strict protocols on what you did when you passed the threshold of our doors, reinforced stringently. So everyone wore a mask. No one flaunted that. And I ran into people who didn't think the virus was real and didn't think it was as serious as it was. Often a lot of the people that we see suffer from mental illness. Um, they're not to blame for their opinions on things like that. They just can't process. In my opinion, I don't think that they can process something like this uh, realistically or rationally. But I didn't come across anyone who was openly dismissive of the situation. People were very frustrated with the situation, you know, not being able to come in and see their relatives in the hospital and certainly not amongst any of the staff. There was no overtly political dissent. I, I think of it more on a national scale um, about what was going on, where where you're in a hospital, you're treating these people, your, your staff, these amazing people are at end of life for people who contracted COVID and would have lived longer. And so you're doing that. And out here in the world, he who will not be named was leading this country, quote fingers. And um, and I, can't, I still can't even come to terms with that, um, let alone how we're still dealing with it with a certain portion of our population. I'm trying to be kind here. Um, but I think about the brave men and women who are in there uh, in the hospitals seeing the truth, seeing what's happening. And if you're outside of this, you're down in, let's say, Florida, and re there's no regulations and everyone's contracting COVID. And did that ever get to you? I mean, I'm sure you were aware of it, but you're also so busy. Sometimes I get so busy, I don't know what's going on, but I can't imagine the level of busyness you had. Yes, it was infuriating, I think, to all of us working in the hospital at the time to have the pandemic not taken seriously and to have it played as as a political game where one side sees it as very serious and the other side does not. I think one of the things that really inflamed my anger at one point was the president of, of Brazil, Bolsonaro, referring to it as, as a bad case of the flu. You know, I can remember speaking to one of our attending pulmonologists and asking how are you treating these patients? And he goes, I am, I'm not treating them. I'm just waiting. I'm just keeping them alive. My, 
whereas normally I would have a I would be treating a ventilated patient for a few days. I'm treating them for weeks on end. We were doing incredibly intensive maneuvers to try and oxygenate these people that were dying of COVID where they'd be on a ventilator. We'd be proning them, which is turning them over on their stomach to ventilate their posterior lung fields. This takes a huge amount of manpower and it's incredibly difficult. And they were the effects that the patients were suffering because of COVID. So to have people come out and say it's just the flu and I mean, yeah, that was pretty infuriating. All I really wanted to do was just have them tour. The, Of course, you don't wish ill on people and say, well, I wish it was your brother that was in here or your mother, and then you'd have a different opinion. But, I mean, really, I would have loved to have, for people just to have been shown. I mean, I mean you, you know because you see patients yourself, it's entirely different when you're the one that's sick or you're the one that's looking after the person that's sick. When... It's looked at from the third person, from outside. There's no real perspective as to how dramatically serious and impactful the illness is, right? Right. I think that that's human nature, that people, unless it's affecting them, they don't believe it or they don't pay attention or... I I honestly do. I think that it's human nature. I mean, sometimes you know, it takes the death of a loved one to wake people up even to their own lives, even to their own walking coma that they're in of their life to take inventory of what am I doing with my life? And you see that a lot when, you know, people experience grief and death of loved ones. And I also see that in medicine a lot, that sometimes it takes people, either someone very close to them, or they get some sort of diagnosis that they're now faced with right, to then start paying attention and to wake up. And so when you have propaganda out there that something like COVID isn't serious, if people aren't actually experiencing it themselves or they don't know anyone close to them who got really sick from it, it was really easy for them to just ignore it and blow it off. Like I would like to think that we were a species that was a lot more empathetic and curious about um, things that we don't experience and, you know, maybe acknowledge, Hey, maybe that is a big deal. Maybe I should just, you know, sit in humility for five seconds. Yeah. It would be great if people were more self-aware of their inability to see their fellow human beings struggles. Selfishness probably has a lot to do with it at the root of it. I think a lot of what you say is true in terms of the the politicizing of it that really preyed on people's selfishness, you know, like you are being deprived of something because this thing's going on without telling the, the full truth, which is, yes, you're being deprived of things because ultimately we are all at danger from this thing. But the it's very hard. The, the collective good argument is very difficult to rationalize at the moment because it seems like people are not willing to go there. <laughs> um, Guy, why don't you tell us a little bit about your personal life through this? Because if you're working in a hospital among COVID patients, I'm sure that you didn't just go home and hug and kiss your wife and your child immediately and you know, I'm sure you had your own home protocols that were difficult for you on a personal level. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it was, um, that was one thing that changed quite dramatically. As I said, like a lot of, you know, most of the staff, we were all very 
concerned about not getting sick ourselves and not getting our families sick. And I'm pretty sure that everyone's adherence to personal protective equipment and hand hygiene just went through the roof immediately. The biggest thing was, you know, I was used to finishing my shift off, pulling my scrubs off in the change room and getting changed and heading home. And then that was it. I'd come home and I'd see my family. Initially, when I when I got reassigned, I started showering at the end of my shift, which I never used to do. I just used to pull the scrubs off and put my bike clothes on and head home. I'd actually take a full shower before I got changed into my bike clothes. And then I'd head home and I was sleeping in the basement during the day and really not interacting with my family that much, minimalizing contact with them. Then my position moved more to the day shift and I still kept up that protocol of sleeping separately from my family and also minimalizing contact. No, I didn't come home and hug my daughter and my wife and kiss and that sort of stuff that was just that you you just take for granted, right? You don't even think about that. And then all of a sudden you start thinking about that and you come home and you act differently. And so they were definitely big changes that took place in my lifestyle and the way I was interacting with my family. Of course, same for all of us, right? Like immediately our whole social life and network just collapsed, right? So there was, uh, I wasn't so concerned about spreading it to my friends because we didn't see our friends, right, for a year. (laughs) And looking back now after this experience, did it change how you view nursing and how you view uh, healthcare? But first, why nursing? When, when was that for you? What happened in your life that led you down this path? Well, it was back in the 1990s. I was already living here in Seattle and I was already married. My wife and I didn't have children at that point. And um, my wife was a dessert baker and I was a pest control technician and um, thought, Maybe there's a better way. To... <laughs> I'd previously in Australia, when I was much younger, I'd worked as um, a medical assistant and I felt like that was something that I could do. And so I chose to go back to school as, as did Zola, my wife, and we sort of plotted new career courses back then. And I think I chose nursing partly because I'd had some exposure and I felt confident that I'd be able to do it. And also I wanted a job where I was helping in some way um, yeah. <laughs> well, you're definitely helping. And then you were nursed clearly for a long time before COVID. Has COVID changed how you look at your, your job? Has it in, reinforced it? Has it caused you to have bad feelings about it? What, what You and your profession, how, how did this impact that? Had a huge impact in terms of just how we perceived what public health issues are. Yeah, because leading up to COVID-19, at the hospital, we'd run through a whole group of diseases that were potentially going to become a pandemic. We had MERS, which is uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome uh, virus. We had the original SARS, avian flu, and we had Ebola. Thankfully, Ebola was <laughs> didn't really touch us. But we'd already, at our hospital, and I think many other hospitals like us, large university-based uh, medical systems, had developed things, ours is called a SPAT, Special Pathogens Action Team, to deal with the potential of something like this happening. So we'd had these sort of scares before where we thought something was going to happen and we had operations and protocols in place for it and that never really eventualized. And I think that this was just a huge wake-up call for us all 
that what happens when it does really happen and the huge um, impact it has. I, I have only good feelings about my profession. I enjoy my job and I don't feel that COVID's changed that in any way. I feel really proud of my colleagues and um, everyone that works at the hospital, the entire team. You know, it's, it's easy to think that it's just us nurses because I'm a nurse and, <laughs> and the docs who we work, you know, hand in hand with the respiratory therapists, but it's everyone. It's the staff that cook the meals for the patients and for us. It's the people that clean, you know, the environmental services are incredibly vital people, especially when you think of what's happened where, you know, you have this infectious disease running rampant in society and the hospital needs to stay clean. Those people also continued to come to work every day and do their job in an environment of unknown danger, essentially. Well, okay. So, um, how about your view of music? <laughs> how, <laughs> what what effect did it have on you not playing it live, not going to it live? And then, of course, like you said, in your basement, you know, I've talked to so many musicians who, when it started, no output. There was just, just like all of us, we were all just adjusting. And then I've seen a massive amount of output um, at some point in the pandemic. Things changed. People went to what they've done their whole lives. They went to music to create, to help uh, therapy, to, you know, to, to get lost in it, to be in the moment, all the great things that make music just the most perfect thing on earth, in my opinion. Um, for you, what was it music wise? Well, um, <laughs> it's obviously a giant part of my life and um, I pretty much live to to play music so it was i mean obviously the the biggest part of my musical life for the last 20 years has been being in mud honey and um we just stopped being mud honey <laughs> and uh, we realized that there was nothing we could really do a lot of bands did a great job got really inventive with uh remote recording and zoom and stuff for mud honey we couldn't really find a, a way to do that just because of the nature of our <laughs> of our particular brand <laughs> of music. And so that was really tough. What we did do, though, was we stayed in contact personally on, you know, a pretty regular basis to just make sure that we didn't lose track of, of ourselves, of our band, and on a personal level. I think a lot of musicians, it was a challenging time but also a rewarding time because you got to to work by yourself and a lot more recording got done. I think that probably, you know, there was a great deal of, of output in terms of recorded music for the last year. I will say I do have another project, a very small synthesizer group that's the three of us called the Beauty Hunters and Two Synths and our visual man, Kurt. We actually um, started a YouTube channel and we were actually able to play with two synthesizers. It was a lot easier than drums and guitars and stuff. It was sort of like a really bad public access television show for for probably about 12 weeks there i think we did 12 episodes that was kind of fun but it was definitely not like going to a show which i am really looking forward to attending at some time soon this was a, a very big thing two weeks ago finally all of mud honey got their vaccines and we went to practice and so to actually play music at the volume that i got to put earplugs in was <laughs> A fantastic joy. Well, look, you it takes a pandemic for Mud Honey to stop playing. Like, as long as I have lived in this city or in this state, 
uh, Mud Honey has been playing music. So that is how that is how bad the pandemic slowed down society. That Mud Honey was not playing. <laughs> That's the barometer. That is the barometer for me. Uh, th- to me, one of the most important bands clearly to ever come out of the the Northwest. And 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 you guys are great fellas. And and when you said um, our music didn't really translate, to, I laughed because I was like, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I wouldn't see that either. I, I would like to see it. That <laughs> would be very mud honey. That would be very funny to me, but I don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it translates well. So you're right. I think I think it has its limitations, but I I think and I hope too that I don't know what your experience with uh, fans on the other side of this is is seen with Bandcamp and seeing um, that there are some avenues. You know, streaming's just. I mean, it's a it's a place to hear music. It is not a place for musicians to mm. ever make money from their music. I, I no. I got the sense that people, <sighs> the society took a break, and things that you took for granted, um, like seeing live music, I th- never thought it'd happen in my lifetime. And what I've been seeing from listeners and hearing from them is they're going to every show. They are on Bandcamp buying music and buying merch. I mean, we're all regrouping and, and, and we're all finding a new way to live, I think, after this. Are you hopeful that that's going to be the case, that, that musicians will be supported better? I hope so. I, I hope this has been the opportunity to highlight what it's like without it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad that you mentioned Bandcamp because I think that that's an excellent organization and service for musicians, uh, much more so than for-profit streaming services. Um, Bandcamp started up Bandcamp Fridays to try and funnel more money to musicians. And Bandcamp is great because you can be on it at whatever level of musician you are, wherever you are in the world. And I think that that was the great thing that might have happened this year is that people realize that they can go and support their local, just their local artists by going to Bandcamp and like buying some of their songs or buying some of their merch or. I think that that's really important. I'm going to keep saying I'm lucky, but I am lucky. Um, obviously, I had a job throughout this entire pandemic and and financial insecurity was not an issue at all for me. But a lot of musicians only have music as their income. And so every little bit helps for those musicians. And so things like Bandcamp are vital to you know keep something coming in because it must have been very hard for the people out there that dedicate their entire life to music and not everyone is lucky enough to be super successful but they there's a lot of musicians that um that provide entertainment on a weekly basis for people and that would have been very hard if you know i i like to think of musicians and music as as part of wellness because i honestly feel like music does have the power to heal whether you're playing music or listening to music or going to see shows like people find a lot of community and they find their people when they find you know uh like-minded people who like the same kind of music or like to go to the same kind of shows and that kind of thing and it and i and i honestly believe that loneliness i've said this before but it it's part of all cause mortality. You know, we think of smoking and we think of high blood pressure, but loneliness registers on all cause mortality. And I think when people connect to music, I think it's healing. So I think of musicians as part of the wellness industry in a way. And so how do you, I mean, do you feel that way? Do you think that music heals and and what's your view on that? I agree with you 100%. I think that 
two points that you make there um, can't be stressed enough. One, sense of community. Social isolation is a known killer. It potentiates mental health issues, and I think that there's probably more to be understood, even the physiological impacts of social isolation and, as you say, loneliness. And so I think that that sense of community is vital and music is one of the great providers of that. It's not the only one in society, but it's a fantastic one. Um, music is so universally accepted as a, as a human thing, right? Um, I think the other side of it is the joy that it brings both the players and the, um, and the audience. And I've played in bands since I was about 20 years old, so for uh, 36 years now. Um, and, you know, playing shows and seeing people, and particularly the last 20 years in Mud Honey, we've been all over the world and everywhere we go we play shows. The one thing you see when you look out at a show, you see people smiling, you know. <laughs> you see joy on people's faces yeah. that, um, that, that they're getting to, to hear you and participate in the show and stuff. And so that can't be um, played down, I don't think, just the the pure physical joy of participating either as a musician or an audience in music. It's um, if it makes you feel happy, it can't be bad. Right. You know? <laughs> and, it, and at any age, you know, the, the feeling I have and, after a show, it, it hasn't changed since my, you know, uh, seeing Jane's addiction, the first show I ever went to, like I had the same feeling now <laughs> that I had then. That's the other thing that, that, uh, you know, just blows me away about seeing live shows. It just, it, it, it's youthful as well. It just makes you feel alive and taking that away has been brutal. Um, speaking of that, so what is the plan for Mud Honey? I know you just practice, there's new music, there's tour. Well, like, what's the plan? Is there a plan? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> is there a plan? Yeah. Yes, there is a plan. So <laughs> I think us, like everyone else who has stuff planned for their band, had the rug pulled out, 2020 just didn't exist. We cancelled all of our tours and shows. And, you know, we're part of a, of a, of a larger business organisation that involves ourselves, our booking agent, um, club booking agents, and then clubs themselves. This is all part of, a, of an industry. Um, and so we, of course, okay, so 2021, we'll push everything to 2021 and we'll be back online then. And now it appears 2021 is slowly coming back to life. But for us, we decided that we would just honour our commitments that we've said we, we had in 2022. And if something comes up before that and it appears that it's um, safe and um, operational to play shows, then we'll look at doing that. In the very short term, we're going into the recording studio because we're all vaccinated in September to lay down some new stuff. That's pretty much our plans. Our plans is to get back to full operations in 2022. And if there's, and if stuff can come up later this year, then we're up for that as well. But we want to wait and make sure that it's a hundred percent safe and that it's, um, and that it can happen without causing some of that sort of industry stuff to, um, you know, to not function so well. We don't want to put strains on, you know, um, clubs that sell tickets that can't be honoured and stuff like that, which there was a, that was another side of what happened that was a big deal, right, was, you know, when everything got cancelled in 2020, there was a lot of already sold tickets to a lot of shows all over the world that didn't happen, and that was that was a big deal for the business side of music. 
Well, you talk about all the people, uh, not just doctors and nurses, but all the support. My God, the amount of people involved in just one show. If you were to take one show and how you got to that location and then how you were able to play live. I mean, from the guy working the door to the sound guy to people working merch to, I mean, it is such an industry that already is razor thin margins and um, all of those, every last person, again, most don't have a health insurance or this isn't a regular paycheck. Mm -hmm. This is a gig that isn't covered in a lot of the relief. It was brutal. It was really, really tough. So I'm so hopeful that 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 comes back as well. And and those people hopefully um, have jobs. And, um, but I felt immediately cheered up when you started talking about playing. We need it. There needs, we need to keep moving here. We need, um, I don't even have a question. I'm just happy you're playing music. So <laughs> that was just, I felt bad. Like every, like all, it just felt like the whole Seattle scene and all the bands, that's it. We're done. But God bless you, Mud Honey, for continuing on. Oh. Give Mark Arm a big Thanks. hug for me for surviving this long. <laughs> I will join, and it, you know, it's um. Well, that was one of the nicest things actually was to be able to hug each other the mm. other week as well. Um, but I'm sure that everyone's going to be very happy to get back to shows. So we were talking about mental health in how much it's affected the music industry. And Guy, I don't know your personal history. I don't know if you have a history of addiction or mental health issues or anything like that. I don't know anything about you in that regard. But what I do know is you seem pretty on top of it right now in your life. You're you're working in the hospital. You're playing with an extremely uh, successful band. I'm watching you smile. You've got a lot of joy. You've got, sounds like a lovely wife and child. What, um, what do you do to take care of yourself? Like, what are your health hacks? And, and I personally believe that mental health and physical health are intertwined, right? Like they can really like either spiral one way or the other, but I wondered, you know, what are you doing to take care of your health, mental and physical? And how are you getting through this life? And how are you, you know, what do you do? What's your health regimen, I guess? Well, I agree that they're both intrinsically entwined and because of that reason I've sort of made an effort and this hasn't always been the case but probably for the for the greater part of the last couple of decades I made a real effort to be as physically active as possible. I I cycle. I refuse to commute by vehicle that's not a pedal-powered vehicle to, to work for many years now um, and I belong to a club that I go cycling with and I try and play other sports if I can, and I try and get outside as much as possible and just try and do things, you know, like even something as simple as, you know, I was off the other day and it was a weekday and my daughter was off from school. So we went down to Green Lake and we went paddleboarding. And I think that healthy outdoor activities and regular exercise are essential for me to stay happy because, I mean, we're all, we all suffer from stress. We all have jobs and family lives and they don't always go to plan and they can create a lot of stresses in your life and um, you need a pressure valve release and I think that um, definitely physical activity. Also, I really like sport and I like playing games and I think that games are important because it's partly social playing a game and it's also it takes you to another place in your head. You know, you have to think about how you're going to play the game um 
And I think the other thing that I need to do for my health is be creative because that gives me a purpose in life. Obviously, I have a purpose in life to be a father and a husband and live a, a happy family life as best I can. But I also have a purpose in terms of I want to make music and I want to make things with that music, you know, durable documents like records and recordings and stuff. I'm interested in that and that's important to me. And uh, I think that's been very important in terms of my long-term mental health is having goals and purpose. And music's provided that. It's been a fantastic avenue for that. So Guy, can you point to any specific incidents or situations you found yourself in over the last year that could really sort of crystallize what the year was like for you? I think that one thing, there were a lot of instances with uh, patient situations and um, and a lot of them were very serious, uh, critically ill, life-threatening situations. But I think one that really comes to mind was not a critical illness, but it was fascinating in terms of operationally what went on during COVID in the hospital. So, you know, COVID is a respiratory virus and it's transferred by uh, droplet contact out of people's mouths and aerosolization of oral secretions. And that's how it gets transmitted. We uh, weren't sure what certain things did in terms of creating an environment for that transmission. One of them, we initially started out wondering, well, a lot of our patients have to take a shower. Can they take a shower without increasing the risk of contamination? Because our rooms for our ambulatory patients have showers and it's very nice in terms of, for a lot of reasons, to take a bath. It's you know, referred to often as the universal um, antidepressant, you know, bathing yourself. Um, we have a, a part of our mission population is the uh, mentally ill at Harborview and we have a giant amount of beds dedicated to uh, mental illness at the hospital. We had um, an unfortunate young person that was in the throes of a psychotic episode come in and they were um, isolated. They were actually COVID positive and they were isolated in a psychiatric ward and the manifestation of their psychosis was um, continual bathing. They were continually bathing themselves and taking a bath, which is not uncommon. So it was uh, this habitual showering and cleansing and using of water in the environment. And at first, we didn't really know if that was going to be creating more of a risk for the nurses and doctors that had to enter the room, whether we were aer- whether they were aerosolizing more COVID particles because of the shower. These are all the things that when you're learning about something that you don't necessarily appreciate. So in terms of Everyone in the hospital getting involved in this and how complicated some of these operations are. We actually had to get engineering to come and shut off the water just to that one room (laughs) to stop the patient from um, continually bathing themselves until we understood more about the virus and we realised that there probably wasn't a great risk. But that just was a great example of just how complicated COVID made everything. Really, really complicated what we're previously much more simple patient care scenarios. Right. You're building the plane as you're flying it. That's what it felt like for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it's it's already flying, right? People are already sick. They're already in hospital. Right? Yeah. Well, thank you for spending some time with us. And thank you for everything you and your staff did through the pandemic. Um, we did a tribute at KXP to nurses and healthcare workers, and your name came up quite a bit from listeners. They were, I have to say, really proud to know 
a musician they love was in this arena helping others. And, and you just, you, you helped a lot of people, people who interacted with you got, uh, definitely told me their experience with you and the staff was incredible. Thank you very much. And I'd just like to say, John, thank you so much to KXP, um, who, who I know sent out um, a number of shout outs during, during Nurses Week, yep. which we just had last month. And um, both myself and the greater community of nurses here in Seattle and around the world that listen to KXP because, you know, it's got a worldwide broadcast. I'm sure that they feel the same way. Thank you very much. We, it's, it's important to be recognized. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks for inviting me. And it's, um, it was very nice to meet you in person, Amy, and, um, <laughs> and see you again, John. And also thank you because it's um, actually nice to be able to talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. I bet. This is different conversation than, than I usually have, right? Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And it, it's, I was really looking forward to this. Uh, and, and it's a really unique perspective that I think people are going to, and you're an entry point. It's really good because we can talk to a musician about this. It's very unique. So I can't wait to see you again play. Uh, I don't know when that'll be, but uh, we, will, we will definitely be there, man. Maybe not on top of the Space Needle this time. No. You know, he was in another band uh, called Lubricated Goat. I didn't even bring that up, uh, but that is a that is a hell of a band name. That is one hell of a band name. <laughs> I was trying to think of uh, I'm going to rebrand some uh, some lube, you know, and the <laughs> twigs and berries for uh, the testicles. Yeah, I'm Testicle training. Lube. I'm training for a marathon, and so um, now that the mileage is going up, the lube uh, is going up. Uh, not there, but it's going anyway. So I experienced some bad lube. So I need to create a new lube uh, and we're trying to think of a name of it. And yeah. So, and by the way, don't steal our idea. We're going to patent yeah, this and market lubri- it. And think lubricated goat is, is the lubricated goat for <laughs> testicle lube. Yeah. Uh, that's a terrible transition. Uh, but we can't thank Guy enough for joining us and he and others who have been through this pandemic. We may never know the toll it has taken on our medical professionals, the PTSD that I'm sure a ton of them are experiencing from, you know, when we talked about the people dying and holding up the uh, iPads and saying goodbye and, and being the only source of comfort for people who pass or just the stress every day or thinking you're putting others in danger every day uh, of being exposed to this virus. I can't, Amy, uh, can you, I mean, what is the toll you think on our, on our uh, medical professionals out there? I think it's huge, you know, and I think it's huge a lot of the time. Right. And we don't talk about this. And he even said to us afterwards, we were kind of emailing with him, you know, post interview. And he said, gosh, it was just so good to talk about this stuff. You know, when I was in medical school, we would talk about that phenomena, how 
doctors and nurses and first responders and a lot of people that are health professionals and who see a lot of things and experience a lot of things are involved in a lot of uh, sort of traumatic uh, life and death situations on the job don't always have an outlet. Like they don't always have a group support system or they're not, they're not everybody's (laughs) signed up for therapy or, you know, they're just sort of, and they all, there's almost some shame with it. Like, this is my job. Well, I'm supposed to do this. This is my job. And I think some people are better at it than others, you know? And I think that kind of, it comes with the territory. Like, you know, in medical school, there, there was a high attrition rate after year one, super high attrition rate. And I think because people realize like, oh shit, no, I don't, I, I need to go do something else. It seems really common though. You know, what you hear about people coming back from war is, well, that was my job. You know, I should, it's just, it comes with the territory and I'm tough and I'm used to it. So I'm not going to deal with this. Yeah. And I do think that you do have to have sort of a base level of a nervous system sure. that can handle stuff. Yeah. You do. You don't like... You don't go sign up to be a first responder if you can't handle carnage on the freeway. Yeah. But when you do get there, it might be more than you ever thought you were going to be exposed to, and it might have a serious effect on you. Do you think um, for us regular folk um, going through this pandemic, and I'm not trying to compare our situation or any of ours uh, to the medical field. They had their own very heavy, unique, uh, life-changing experience. But we all had a version of it too, so it made me think – are we going to be, you know, like the depression had an effect on my grandpa, my grandma and grandpa. I don't know. You know, I know with your, your dad was old enough, oh, the actually. Great, depression, great yeah. depression. Yeah. Had a real effect living through that, you know, the suffering and not having money and, you know, where food was going to be on the table or watching the entire economy collapse around you. I mean, that's a traumatic experience. And you saw it with the savings and the not spending money. And like, and I remember thinking just like, okay, get over it. It's something like everything's good. You know, <laughs> in a <laughs> pandemic, it's like, I'll never run our business the same. No. You know, our bar, if we, if we hadn't adjusted like we did, I will never, ever be a part of a business that isn't doing everything it can to prepare for an emergency that may or may not come again. Well, it's, it's sort of like this saying, you know, like you have to have some sort of trust in the universe, but you also lock your car. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Like, so I was, I've been reading a lot about mindset recently and, and it's, you know, it's awesome. I love reading about mindset. I highly recommend y'all read about mindset. Um, but so there's, if, if you have this optimism that things aren't always going to be bad, you know, they've proven that people are just generally happier, but I'm not talking about toxic positivity. So the toxic positivity is like, you are in denial. You're in denial of shit that's going on. Like everything's fine and you're just it right? Like that's yeah, that's not people. good, right? <laughs> that's that's denial. Yeah. Um but optimism, like having some assumption that not everything is always bad all the time and that good does happen and there is good in the world and there are good people in the world and there are good things for you in the world. And that's not just about the future, but being able to do that now in the present, to look around you and see right now the good in the world, or look in your past and see the good in your past, right? And that's totally healthy. And then lock your car, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> then there's a certain realism or there's a certain like preparedness at the same time. Because, I mean, as a species, we often go to worst case scenario because that's how we prepare ourselves or prevent 
that's how we survive, yeah. right? Yeah. But but I would also argue that our optimism and positive thinking and all that kind of stuff is also how we survive. Because what would be the point if you didn't see some sort of betterness in the future? What what are you working towards? Like you have to be working towards something at all times as a human species, I think. Well, I, I think forgiveness is important too as we come out of this because I've had many days where I think I'm supposed to be happier or on top of things. And we started this podcast uh, talking about that. And it's not giving weight to those things um, that bring you down. And I think forgiving yourself a little bit for feeling maybe I, maybe you've never dealt with depression or dealt with um, the kind of serious situations we've been dealing with over the past two years. It's a lot. We were going over that. Fuck, man. We're like the bridge going down. And then you're like, remember, we had an insurrection and we lived through the Trump fuck shit like that. That all <laughs> happened. We all had to experience. Remember when he went to the hospital and then they drove him around in a car and he waved at everybody. That was a day and we all fucking dealt with it. And then we moved on to the next crazy shit. He got in a helicopter. He landed and waved like an imbecile. And it's just like that's just a 48 hours, you know, during the pandemic. I don't think I, I've dealt with that. You know, these are huge. These are giant world events. And then you have whatever's going on. You're homeschooling with your kids, economic scarcity, like just your, your businesses, friends suffering. Um, and we're all going to be dealing with for a while. So I think, I think there's a bit of forgiveness that we have to give one another. Right. And, and I would just go back into sort of this philosophy of, and both, you know, I think some people feel like if they're not giving weight to things or if they're not sort of, I hate to say it, but like consuming information about suffering, or other human suffering, at all times, they almost feel guilty. Like people have survivor's guilt. And you see it with um, when people die, they have survivor's guilt. Or let's say um, your life isn't terrible. Your life is good. Are you supposed to feel bad about it? No, it's an and both. You can absolutely have empathy and you can absolutely take action to help other people where you can right? And you absolutely can be aware of real things that are going on that do cause pain and suffering. And, and both. You can find joy and you can find optimism and you can find the good things in life. Well, that's a good place to end this podcast, Amy. You can find us on the doctor and the DJ. See that segue right there? That's pro. See that? Um, you can find us on Instagram, the doctor, the DJ. You can write us directly there. I think that's the best place to get a hold of us. Yeah, you can direct message us at um, the Instagram. Yeah. At the Instagram. At the Instagram. On Good the job, inter- Grandma. In- interwebs. When you're done with Friendster and MySpace, go over to the interwebs <laughs> and hit us on the Insta- hit us on the gram and direct uh, message us. We will get that. So doc- the doctor and the DJ, follow us. And uh, if you have any questions, we may address during this podcast or if you're out there um, and want to be involved in the podcast uh, as a guest or a sponsor, we're always open to hear from all of you out there. So please follow us and let us know. A huge thank you to Guy Madison for spending some time with us. He's got a lot going on. Rocking the parenting, rocking the mud honey, rocking the nurse life. Um, and he is an overall awesome, incredible human yeah, being. Yeah, I love that guy. Um, I didn't, no pun intended. I love that guy. Um, and I want to thank Ruinous Media for, uh, as always, their support through this podcast and all their production skills and support and all the other nonsense they do for us thank you chris and patrick and joe we really appreciate you all and all of you for subscribing tell everyone you know about the doctor and the dj podcast and again you can find us on instagram the doctor and the dj as we mentioned our website the doctor and the dj.com
And we'd like to thank Michael Lerner for the theme song for the Doctor and the DJ. We may have used it more than once, so you get an extra thank you, Michael Lerner. Thank you. We leave you with one more. This from Mud Honey on the Doctor and the DJ podcast. <laughs>